This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Welcome to another episode of The Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, as always, Michael Rothstein. This episode brought to you by Visa, Indeed, Regents Field, and Bet Online. So, this is going to be a shorter episode today. Obviously, we had the massive mailbag episode yesterday. We had the interview with Jeff Perlman on Tuesday. Tomorrow, we've got an interview with Josh Weinfuss, my colleague who covers the Arizona Cardinals, coming to get you ready for Sunday's matchup between the 0-2 Lions and the 2-0 Cardinals. But before we get there, we're going we're gonna to do a couple things. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about Sheila Fordham. As you hopefully saw yesterday, my profile that I've been kind of teasing a little bit here on the podcast over the last couple of weeks on Sheila Fordham finally ran. It's really the first look anybody has given into her and her life and anything really about her. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that in the top of the show, and then in the back half of the show, uh, I will do my five keys, as we did last week, to the Lions potentially beating Arizona, which I think is potentially is possibly a very tough task for Detroit here on Sunday. So let's get into Sheila Fordham first, and I'll walk you first through the genesis of this story and how it happened, which is when the Lions made the move in June to go from Martha Ford to Sheila Ford Hamp. I think it was June 23rd, if I remember correctly. I immediately said, okay, what can I learn about Sheila Ford Hamp? I had done a little bit of kind of poking around beforehand. I had actually known about the so- the youth soccer thing for about a year because I had known a couple of people having lived in Ann Arbor and still living in Ann Arbor that played on those teams. So I knew that, and that was one area I at least wanted to dig in on. But once she the transfer happened, I immediately went to LexisNexis and tried to learn as much as I could about her. And what I started to realize as I was going through pages and pages of, of stuff on LexisNexis was no one had ever really written about her. And she's a somewhat prominent figure, particularly in philanthropic circles, and she's obviously, you know, the member of a very high-profile family in Detroit. So I thought there would maybe be something. And it turned out there just wasn't anything. And that piqued my interest because when you're working with a blank slate, which in many ways Sheila Ford Hamp 
is it allows a lot of breath for trying to learn as much as you can that maybe hasn't been reported before. And then Sheila Fordham talked and she said a few things during her introductory press conference that intrigued me more, particularly the stuff about the NFL and some of these social justice questions that she took. So I just started making some calls. The soccer piece was the first part of the story that I reported out. And I talked with one person that I did know who had played under her as a kid. And then that person connected me with a couple of people. And then that side of the story kind of went from there. And that side of the story was reported really early on. Uh, then through my next Lexus Nexus search, one thing that didn't make the story, but I found one of the few things I did find was that she did have kind of a coming out party that is very popular in society circles in 1970 at the Ford Hamp or at the, sorry, the Ford home in Gross Point and Shanana, the band played in that coming out party. I don't know what, how else to call it. I think it's like a, a ball or whatever it is. So they played that. And my next step, because I just found that to be very interesting, was I actually reached out to the some of the band members from Shanana that were in Shanana in 1970. Unfortunately, none of them really remembered playing that. And that's not surprising. They were a pretty big band at that point in time. And they played a lot of stuff. So not shocked that they didn't remember, but I figured that was at least kind of a, a thread I wanted to pull just because I didn't know what I was going to find or, or what I wasn't going to find. So then once I started doing a little bit more research, I saw, well, okay, what boards is she on? Where where are threads I can even pull? Because it's not like she has a big social media presence. It's not like she has a massive business background. There's just not much that was known. So I started reaching out to people at the Purple Rose. I started reaching out to some people in other boards. I started reaching out to some people within the Henry Ford. And a bunch of people did not email me back. Uh, And then a few people did. And I started talking with those people. And then as it is with almost every story, those people will suggest other people. And the other thing I wanted to do within that was one thing everybody knew was that she played tennis at Yale. And I looked into athletes at, athletes at Yale, female athletes at Yale at that time, and then specifically the tennis team. I emailed Yale. I got a copy of their letter winners, and I just started reaching out. I started emailing. I started calling. Uh, I started using all of the tools that I have, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Google searches, all of that to try and find anybody. So I started finding people to talk with. And those people at Yale, a couple of people who did talk to me, led me to a few other people. And some of them in the story gave me little nuggets here and there. Like Lori Mifflin, who uh, was one of the people who started the field hockey team at Yale, which was the first varsity team to play. And she's obviously gone on to an incredibly successful career as a journalist, she told me about the Red Smith class. And that led down that thread. And then I talked with a few other people 
at Yale who led me down a couple of other threads and who just gave me some context of what it was like to be a woman at Yale in one of its early classes and a female athlete at Yale. And some of those people are not quoted in the story. So had those chats and then really toward the end, it was at the very end of my reporting, the last person I spoke with had mentioned her friendship with Henry Louis Gates. And that was not something that I had uncovered at any point at that time. And I reached out to Henry Louis Gates Jr. And he was willing to talk. And we talked a few days later. And that was the last piece that I was able to get. That was the last person I spoke with for my story. And at that point, that was when I found out about what had happened with the Lions, which is my lead, and Henry Louis Gates Jr. speaking to the Lions on August 28th. And that was how the front of that story came together. Everything else had already been reported. My original lead was actually, before I found out about that, was some of the stuff about uh, Henry Ford Museum and her getting Harold Scramstad to come aboard. But once the I got the information about what she had done already as the owner of the Lions in only a couple of months. That, to me, seemed like that was, I think, the right jumping off point for this story and also would potentially grab readers. So that was the genesis and the construction of that story. And I realize you may not have any interest in this. And if you do, then just feel free to forward ahead to after the break and uh, you can listen to the five keys and we'll go from there. But hopefully there's some interest from you in how I constructed that. Uh, Then from there, I just really read through my notes and and tried to get as good of an understanding as I could about her. I put in multiple requests requests to talk with Sheila. I thought there was a point in time where she may actually have spoken to me, but she eventually declined those requests. And I reached out to some of her family members, some of her kids. Uh, They also did not get back to me. Uh, which I expect, and that just happens sometimes with stories. It's not the first story that I've done that that has happened and that I've done in this fashion. When I wrote about Matthew Stafford back in 2015, I ended up getting Matthew and I ended up getting Kelly for that story, but they were also the last two people I spoke to for the piece. I talked with everyone else in that piece beforehand, and I think that's part of why Matthew and Kelly agreed to talk with me. But... Here are some of my takeaways from Sheila Fordham. And I've seen these questions on Twitter. I've been trying to engage on Twitter uh, and Instagram all day about Sheila. So here's what I think. I, I get the sense that Sheila Fordham, whatever decision she makes about Matt Patricia, about Bob Quinn, really about anything within the organization, it's going to be well-researched and well-thought-out. And she's going to come in with a plan before she makes a decision. Like, she's not going to get caught off guard, I don't think, when it comes to the decision-making process with the general manager and the head coach and where she wants to take the future of the franchise. Does it mean she's going to get the coach or the GM that she wants if she makes it? Not necessarily, because you don't know what the competition is going to look like. But I think she's going to be very well-reasoned in her decision-making. But beyond that, I think she's going to attack this if there is a change made with a very strategic process. And I I got that sense from how she handled finding Scramstad at the Henry Ford 
and also some of the stuff that she's done at the Purple Rose. Now, granted, the Henry Ford and the Purple Rose are much smaller operations than a billion-dollar franchise. I mean, Henry Ford has... It's got a few... I think it's the numbers I looked at on, on one of the kind of non-profit websites. I believe it was somewhere... There was one year it was eight. There was another year where it was way more than that. Uh, million. I think there one year it looked like it was... I forget what it was. It was, it was a... It, very large amount of money. And granted, she's not running the day-to-day. She's the vice chair and former chair of that board. But she is somebody who is not someone who's a chair in name only or on a board in name only. She's involved in every board, very intensely involved. There, Especially with the Purple Rose, there were people that I spoke with that weren't quoted in the story who basically said, listen, I, she's she's up on everything. She understands everything. And when... You have her attention. You have her full and undivided attention. So they see all came away basically telling me what she had done and how much she had helped take that theater from something that was very, very small and into something that's a little bit more stable going forward. Now, obviously, with the pandemic, who knows what that's going to look like. But she's at least had the experience of rebuilding things. Now, again, the Lions are a much different scale but I would also say in that that she probably has more of a knowledge of football and of the Lions than she did of the Henry Ford or the Purple Rose when she became involved with those organizations just based on that this has literally been part of her life, her entire life. And every person that I spoke with when I would just ask casually how much does she talk about football? How much does she talk about the Lions? One story that was relayed to me was that, you know, they knew that she knew a lot about football, but one one person I spoke with said he started talking with her about linebackers and the way she broke down linebacker play was incredibly impressive to him. I, I thought about working that into the story at some point, but it just didn't totally fit with where I was going with it. But I've got a lot of notes possibly for another story down the road as I think Sheila is going to be a main storyline and a main factor the rest of the year and and probably even into the offseason. So there's a lot there, but I get the sense she really knows her football and she's on top of this from a standpoint that I get the sense that she realizes, and I got that sense even back in December when she met with a small group of the media her, her mother, and Rod Wood to discuss keeping Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia. She has a good sense of how the fan base felt then. My guess is that she still has a good sense of how the fan base feels now. And she realizes that, and she even said it, that keeping them was not the popular decision, but it was the one that they felt was the right one at the time. Clearly, things have not gone well. So... It would be interesting to hear her speak now, whenever she does speak, if she does speak at some point, to get a sense of you know where she thinks things went wrong, maybe where her and her mother made errors in judgment in keeping them, if they do in fact make a change, and, and what she kind of thinks about the beginning of the season. We don't know those things because, as I said earlier, she has not talked with anybody yet, and... It'll be interesting to hear what she has to say at this point when she does finally speak. But she has said in the one time she did speak publicly back in June that she will be more accessible and more available than her mother was or her father was 
And I think we're going to see that, see whether that's the case at some point here soon, because there are questions for ownership. Everyone has requests in to talk with Sheila and we'll see what happens. But the overarching take that I got, and I think you've, I've hit on it a little bit here is I think that the potential is there for her to be a very good owner and a very influential owner once she gets her feet under her. Like a lot of people who are calling for her to make moves now, make moves now. She just took over a billion dollar operation two and a half months ago, three months ago. Sure, she was involved with it for the five years beforehand, but there's a difference between being involved and being somebody who's really, you know, the right hand person or the, you know, sounding board person and then making all those decisions on your own. That's an enormous amount of pressure and you want to make sure you get it right, especially an early decision and a major decision that could essentially completely reset your franchise, which is what could very well happen if Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn were to lose their jobs. So I anticipate that she's going to be very thought out and very calculated with this move, especially because if the season ends up being lost, you don't necessarily have to make that move right away. You can still do all of your research and still do all of your background stuff and know you're going to make a move and you just kind of wait until the timing is right. Or maybe you just say, you know what, I, I want to make a move now and and kind of get started that way. There's multiple ways to go about doing this if they decide, indeed, that they do want to make a move. But hopefully you took something from the piece on Sheila about you know how maybe her leadership style could be. We don't know what it's going to be yet. I don't even know if she totally knows what it's going to be yet. But I think there's a lot there that she can build off of from smaller experiences that she's had in the past. That can maybe help her. I'm not saying it's going to make her a slab dunk owner or anything like that, but that will I think help her as she tries to as she starts to navigate the world of sports ownership. Which, frankly, anytime anyone takes over as an owner, very rare is the owner who has been an owner before of a franchise, and that's unlike anything that you can do in business in a lot of ways. Uh, one last thing I want to address here, and I know I've been talking about this for a while, is uh, the fa- like the selling the team thing. I mean, there's no indication that they're going to sell the team. People who keep saying that, it's it's an argument that I understand the frustration for sure, but she's a different generation than her, from her parents. So I'd be curious to see what she does and how she handles that. And I, that's really... The only thing I've got to say on that is that they're not going to sell the team. There's no indication they're going to sell the team. Sheila wants to have the team. She wants to try and turn this thing around. So I think that's going to be where it's going to be. We'll be back right after this break with five keys here on the Michael Rothstein Show. Visa knows that local businesses are the heartbeat of our communities. Whether there are corner stores, our coffee spots, or our favorite shops, local businesses have always been there for us. They remember our orders. They call us by name. Always giving back, making a difference, and going that extra mile to support us and our community. And right now, more than ever, local businesses need our support. So now it's time for us to return the favor. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses and look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with a contactless visa to help support your community. Because where and how you shop matters. Visa, 
everywhere you want to be. Official partner of the NFL. And listen, even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Now, back to our show. And we are back. Thank you for sticking with us here. So we're going to really quickly go through the five keys because I didn't realize that I talked for... 17, 18 minutes there at the start of the show. Hopefully you learned something from it. But five keys. First key to me is the Lions have to run the ball effectively and take a run-first approach to their offense. Now, why do I say that? I say that because A, their run game is shown to be very effective. B, it will shorten the game. And you can, by shortening the game, you can keep Kyler Murray and Arizona's explosive offense off of the field because I don't have any confidence at all that the Lions are going to be able to stop Arizona. And you don't want to get into a high-scoring back-and-forth battle with the Cardinals with all of the offensive weapons that they have and also that defense that you have that has not shown anything in the last five quarters that could give you any sort of confidence whatsoever that they can handle Arizona's multifaceted attack let alone a better, more improved Kyler Murray. I don't know who can run and throw. I don't know how you handle that. So to me, if you're the Lions, you run the ball, you use Adrian Peterson a lot, you use Carryon Johnson, you ground it, you, you ground as much as you can, you go very, very West Coast, short passes are happy passes, you take a few shots with Kenny Galladay to see if you can maybe get that going, but I would really rely on the run to set up everything and to shorten the game. I, I think I made the analogy on a radio show I did yesterday or today um, about maybe Navy football, where you see how Navy football wins games, where part of how they do it is they're able to have long sustained drives, and it's a small margin of error if you don't sustain those drives, but you give the opposing offense less chances to score, and you put them potentially in more pressure to make a mistake if you're being methodical with yours. So I think you have to take that type of strategy. Obviously, they're not going to run a triple option or anything like that. But really run the ball. Try to shorten the game. Don't put your offense in a position where they have to try and keep up as good as the Lions offense may be with Kenny Galladay. Don't put them in a position where they have to keep pace with Arizona, which might be one of the top three or four explosive offenses in the NFL behind Baltimore and Kansas City. Number two, when it comes to defending the Cardinals 
keep Kyler Murray in the pocket. And I know that we've talked a lot about pass rush and getting pressure. This is the type of game where I think that putting too much pressure or trying to blitz too much, especially considering the problems that some of the linebackers have had when it comes to taking the right routes to rushers and to make proper tackles, which we saw against the Packers over and over again, the best strategy here might be to run contain, keep Kyler Murray in the pocket, make him beat you with his arm. Now, the risk there is obviously keeping your corners in a situation where they're going to have to cover for a while, especially if you're insistent on playing man. And Desmond Trufant didn't practice on Wednesday, so if you're looking at Amani Awarie and Jeff Okuda again, one of those guys is going to have to cover DeAndre Hopkins. I would imagine that you would see some double coverage, some shading over there to his side, but then you still got Larry Fitzgerald as the slot receiver. You still got Christian Kirk on the outside as well. Like they're they're just really, really stacked at receiver. And to me, that's a problem. But you you don't want Kyler Murray to beat you with his legs. Because if Kyler Murray starts running and he's able to get get going on you, then your defense has has no shot. Your defense is is screwed. So I think taking away Kyler Murray's legs, trying to take away maybe some of what Kenyon Drake can do and make him make the right decisions in the passing game to beat you might be the way to go. Now, maybe that's a terrible strategy. It very well could be, but that would be, I think, the strategy I would consider employing this week if I were the Lions. So that's my key number two. My third key is kind of antithetical to number one, but it is make sure you get Kenny Galladay active early because Kenny Galladay has scored a lot of touchdowns against the Cardinals. He's got three and three games, but he hasn't gotten a lot of yardage. He hasn't had a hundred yard game. He's had, he hasn't even had a 75 yard game. I don't believe against Arizona yet. So when you look at those things, find a way to get him involved early, get him in the rhythm because he hasn't played in a game since December of last year. And what that might do is that might open up the offense a little bit more. But if they put Peterson on Kenny Galladay and Peterson's able to shut Galladay down a little bit, then feed Marvin Jones and force them to maybe consider switching Peterson over to Marvin Jones because then that would open things up to Galladay. Be smart with where you're going with the ball, and that's on Matthew Stafford. Obviously, take what's what's open, but you have a really good receiver in Galladay. You see how the lot how the Packers treat Devontae Adams, and Jones is a better number two receiver than Alan Lazard or Marquez Valdez Scantling. Have Matthew drop the plays and get there. You know, the 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 fourth thing would be figure out a way to adjust well. Because that's been a problem. I think we've all seen that. The Lions have scripted well to start games the last couple of weeks. They really have. And and it's been evidenced in the leads they've had against the Bears and the leads they've had against the Packers. But once they go away from those scripts, it falls apart. And you have to find a way to make those adjustments faster, make them correctly, and figure that out. Like Matt Patricia and players have talked a lot about the ebb and flow of the game and you can't really you need to stay consistent. Well, part of the game too is adjusting and figuring things out as you go and the Lions just haven't been good at doing that and even if the coaches are even so say the coaches are doing that right the players haven't been good at executing it so it's not clear which side is maybe screwing up there or maybe it's a combination of both but it just hasn't been working for them really after those 
scripts at the start of games. Everything really seems to be a struggle after that. And, you know, as we've seen over the last five quarters, it's been really, really ugly. So my fifth key would be the Lions really need to just go away from this platoon situation that they've been doing with at safety. Uh, play Tracy Walker. Tracy Walker is maybe your best defender right now. He's at worst your third best defender. I think he's your best defensive back. He's your most active defensive back. He's your biggest playmaker in the secondary. That's not a knock, by the way, on Deron Harmon. I think Deron Harmon's actually played fairly well, but Tracy Walker makes plays. He breaks up. He's leading the team in pass breakups. He's actually, he has as many quarterback hits as the entirety of the Lions' defensive line. You can put him a little bit of everywhere. So there's no reason for him to come off the field. This whole thing with packages just doesn't make any sense to me. The Lions have been using him more in the slot and more in like the outside linebacker space and even a little bit in inside linebacker space and even bit out at an outside cornerback space if like a tight end goes out there or something like that. Then they've been using him at safety, which is... That, that's tough when his actual position is a safety. I get they love his versatility, but use him where he's best and, and let him make plays. And, uh, you know, if you're going to have two safeties on the field, make sure he's one of them. Every play. Deron Harmon plays 100% of the snaps. Well, so should Tracy Walker. Tracy Walker is taking Tracy Walker off the field. At this point, when you're having so many issues with your defense, why would you take somebody who is clearly one of your top 11 Clearly one of your top defensive backs. Why would you ever take him off the field? I get it that you want to rotate, obviously, at on the defensive line. And maybe you want to rotate a little bit at linebacker to try and package and get matchups. But in the secondary, why take him off the field? I just don't understand it. Uh, and at this point, why would you take Amani Aware off the field either? Um, because until Desmond Trufon gets back, he's your best corner. So, you know, I don't think they've really taken Aware off the field. But to me, Tracy Walker, don't, why would you take him off the field at this point? So that would be my fifth key in the game is let Tracy Walker play and let him try and go and make plays. And who knows? Maybe I end up being wrong there and they play Tracy Walker and it, it goes horribly bad. That's entirely possible. But I think I've seen enough from Tracy Walker to, to really believe that he is one of the Lions' better defensive players and that he should be on the field way more. So I want to thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope you got something from today's podcast. We'll be back again tomorrow with Josh Weinfuss from the Arizona Cardinals, who covers the Arizona Cardinals, rather, for ESPN.com. I want to thank my sponsors, Indeed, Visa, BetOnline, and Regents Field. I want to thank all of you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Mike Rothstein and on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. And we will talk with you tomorrow. The wait is over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today. And get, take advantage of all of the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts.